It's great to see you. Good morning. And again, welcome to Cornerstone Presbyterian Church. If you're visiting with us, so glad, um, so glad you're here. My name is Ben Griffith. I'm one of the pastors here. And uh, if, you're, if you're tuning in live via uh, live stream, glad that you're here too. Can't wait to see you. Uh, our, our sermon text is printed in your bulletin. Uh, you find it here. Uh, we're going through Psalm 101 this morning as we continue to make our way through a selection of psalms this summer. One of my favorite early Disney movies is the movie The Sword and the Stone. If you remember it, it's the story of the young King Arthur and how he becomes king of England as a teenager and the leader of the Knights of the Round Table. And you remember the the story uh, is how he becomes king, but not in your typical way. He doesn't have your normal, typical pathway to the throne uh, of England. It's not like he's born into a royal family. He doesn't uh, overpower all of his challengers um, or, or subdue all of his, his enemies like that. It's, it's not that way at all. Uh, rather, at the beginning of the movie, we're told that the king of England has died without an heir. And no one can decide who the rightful heir to the throne is. And so it looks like the, the country is going to be torn apart by civil war until a miracle occurs in London. And this sword floats down from the sky and settles itself in this stone. And, and written on the hilt of the sword are these words. Whosoever pulleth out this sword of this stone is rightwise king, born of England. It's a miracle. This is going to be easy. This is how we identify who the right king is. This is how we recognize him. Whoever can pull this sword out is the right and true king. Except the miracle doesn't work, does it? Uh, no one can pull the sword out. Uh, the beginning of the movie tells us that though many tried for the sword with all of their strength, none could move the sword nor stir it. And so the people keep waiting, and they keep longing, and they keep hoping and expecting for the true king to appear, someone who could come and pull this sword out of the stone. I think that's a good, I think that's a good lens through which to see our passage this morning, Psalm 101, because this psalm, I want to invite you to see it as a sword in the stone. <laughs> this psalm is like a sword in the stone. It's um, the, the purpose here is to give us a picture of who the true king really is. We see here an outline, a silhouette of who the true king is that we're waiting for. And the point of the psalm is whoever can be like this, whoever can pull this sword out of the stone, whoever can rule like this and reign like this, this is the true king that we're hoping for. As we're going to see in just a minute as we read it, uh, the psalm reads like a journal entry in King David's private journal. This is a psalm of King David, and it's as, if, it's as if we're looking over his shoulders as he's writing in his journal this list of aspirations, of resolutions, this series of goals that he has for himself as God's anointed king over God's people. And so it's going to read like a list of, I will do this and I will do that. I'm not going to do this. I'm not going to do that. This is who I'm going to be on the inside, and this is who I'm going to be on the outside. And so the psalm reads like a sword in the stone. It's giving us a picture of who the true king really is, both on the inside and on the outside. It's telling us how the true king's heart is going to operate and how his kingdom 
is going to operate. It's, it's, it's giving us a glimpse of what the world is going to be like when the true king finally appears. And so it's giving us the shape, the silhouette, the outline of the true king, and it's saying, this is who you're waiting for. When someone can show up like this, then you'll be able to recognize him. Then you'll know who he is. But the storyline of the whole Old Testament, it really does read like the beginning of that movie, The Sword and the Stone, because no one can pull the sword out. Many tried for the sword with all of their strength, but none could move it. King David, who wrote these words, failed miserably. If you read 2 Samuel 11 and 12, we read about King David's incredible failure and the way that line by line he did not live up to this series of aspirations that he has for himself. If you think that national scandal um, is something, uh, if you know something of national scandal and conspiracy, uh, that was it times 10 in the life of King David and the series in the episode of Bathsheba. Murder, adultery, cover up. And so God's people keep waiting. They keep hoping and expecting, okay, if it's not King David, maybe it's going to be his son. But we get to Solomon, and he fails even more. And so God's people keep waiting. Maybe it's his son. Maybe it's someone else. And king after king after king, as we go through the whole Old Testament, we keep waiting. We keep hoping. This is who the true king has to be like, but he never comes. No one can pull this sword out of the stone. And that's how the Old Testament ends, with God's people still waiting, still hoping, and still longing for someone to make things right. And maybe you know what that's like this morning. Maybe as you come into worship this morning, you know what it's like to hope for, to be longing for someone that can fix what's wrong with the world and what's wrong with you. Someone who's powerful enough and wise enough, who's gentle enough and fair enough to be able to put the world back together again and to put you back together again. Maybe you know what it's like to be on the edge of your seat, hungry and thirsty and waiting for someone that can make all sad things come untrue. Someone who can come and heal the wounds of this broken, groaning world and even the wounds of your own broken, groaning heart this morning. Do you know what that's like? Well, if you know what that's like, if you know what it's like to wait, to hope and to long for this kind of king, then Psalm 101 is for us this morning. So what, is it, what does it have to say to you? How does God want to meet you here in this portion of his good news? Let's read and find out. Psalm 101, this is God's word. I will sing of steadfast love and justice. To you, O Lord, I will make music. I will ponder the way that is blameless. O when will you come to me? I will walk with integrity of heart within my house. I will not set before my eyes anything that is worthless. I hate the work of those who fall away. It shall not cling to me. A perverse heart shall be far from me. I will know nothing of evil. Whoever slanders his neighbor secretly, I will destroy. Whoever has a haughty look and an arrogant heart, I will not endure. I will look with favor on the faithful in the land, that they may dwell with me. He who walks in the way that is blameless shall minister to me. 
No one who practices deceit shall dwell in my house. No one who utters lies shall continue before my eyes. Morning by morning, I will destroy all the wicked in the land, cutting off all the evildoers from the city of the Lord. Amen. This is God's word. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. Let's pray together. Lord Jesus, we pray that you would give us a glimpse of yourself this morning here in this portion of the gospel. And in giving us a glimpse of yourself, oh Lord, open our eyes to see you with eyes of faith and love and hope. Come and meet us here in your word and do not leave us unchanged, we pray. Amen. So Psalm 101, it's like a big giant sword in the stone in the middle of the book of Psalms. It's this silhouette, this this outline of who the true king really is, and it's telling us this is how you'll know. This is how you'll recognize the true king when he comes. He'll be like this. That's the overall message of of the psalm. But I want to look at the psalm uh, from three different angles, through through three different lenses this morning. We're not necessarily going to go verse by verse. We're going to look at the whole psalm in three different um, through three different angles, three different perspectives. The first thing I want you to see is that this is the king that we want. Psalm 101 is showing us that this is the king that we want. And I want you to think about this. Year after year, decade after decade, God's people gathered in the Old Testament. Um, the people of Israel gathered for corporate worship, and this was in their hymn books. This was a psalm that God gave his people to sing and to worship by. He wanted his people then and now to use Psalm 101 in corporate worship, to sing this song. But why? (laughs) I mean, why would God want his people to worship singing this song? Because it really does read like a song that probably shouldn't be on our lips, right? This This is a song that a king can sing, but maybe not us. I mean, Does it strike you as a little odd at first that God would encourage his people to sing verse 8? Morning by morning I will destroy all the wicked in the land, cutting off all of the the evildoers from the city of the Lord. Whoa. What do you do with that? Is God really inviting you to strap on your sword and go out hunting bad guys right now? Is, Is that an appropriate response? What do we do with this kind of language in Psalm 101? Well, the way I want to, what I want you to see what Psalm 101 is doing here, part of what it's doing is that it's training us. It's, it's teaching us. It's hammering into our hearts and into our heads, this is the kind of king that you want. It's forming our expectations. It's, it's shaping our hopes. It's telling us who to long for, who to expect, and who to wait for. It's saying, this is the king that you want. Here he is. This is the king that the world really needs. This is the answer to the world's problems and to your problems. It's a king that can sing this song. A king that can sing the song and it's actually true of him. This is the king that we want. We want, first of all, a king who can sing verse 1. I will sing of steadfast love and justice. The psalmist here is saying that this is the theme song of the true king. This is the music running in the background. This is the, this is the song that everyone can hear under his reign. Steadfast love and justice. It's this beautiful two-part harmony 
of love and justice that everyone can hear because that's the true king's theme song. <laughs> love and justice. An unwavering commitment to mercy and grace and steadfast love coupled with an immovable commitment to justice, to truth and righteousness, to what's right and fair. The true king is able to hold these two things together, he's saying, in perfect harmony. He doesn't, he doesn't, til, he doesn't prioritize what's merciful over what's fair, and he doesn't prioritize what's fair over what's merciful. They're not at odds with each other because they both flow from the king's heart in perfect harmony, perfect love and justice, the way that things ought to be. Can you even imagine what it would be like for the world to be ruled by someone like this? Just let your imagination run wild. What if the one who had the most power in the world was also the one who was the most loving and the most fair and just? Can you imagine if that was the song that you heard coming from the most powerful person in the world? I think it's really hard to imagine that. Because we live in a world, we wake up in the world every day both hearing a different song and participating in a different song. The song that we hear sung over us and that we participate in is this broken symphony, this ear-splitting symphony of greed and anger and lust, of oppression and hatred and power and violence and injustice. That's the song that we hear. That's the song that's coming from all... From all of the power brokers in this world, but God is imagining you. He's inviting you to imagine something different. A world under the complete control of the true king who sings of steadfast love and justice. He's whetting your appetite, he's forming your expectations, he's saying, This is the kind of king that you want. The psalm goes on, and we see here that there's no distinction between the true king's private life and his public life. There's no distinction, there's no gap between who he is on the inside and who he is on the outside, as the rest of the psalm um, tells us. Verse 2, I will ponder the way that is blameless. He's saying that the true king, he meditates on what is true and good and beautiful because that's what comes out of the deepest recesses of his heart. Then the last part of verse 2, I will walk with integrity within my house. He's saying here that... What the king says is that, is that the people closest to me, the people within my house who know me the best and see me as I really am, they know that I'm not hiding or faking or duplicitous. He, he's saying that I'm not one way at home and then a different way out in public. And then verse 3 and 4, he goes from saying what is true of him on the inside to what's not true of him on the outside. I will not set before my eyes anything that's worthless. I hate the work of those that fall away. It will not cling to me. A perverse heart shall be far from me, and I will know nothing of evil. So we see what's true of him on the inside, and then what's not true of him on the inside. And I think we can sum up all of what he's saying here in, in the first part of the psalm using the words of the famous American architect Frank Lloyd Wright. And in this quote, he's talking about a builder's capacity to build something. But we can just as easily apply it to a king's capacity to rule, a king's capacity to build a kingdom. Frank Lloyd Wright said, says this, No stream rises higher than its source. Whatever a man might build, he could never express or reflect more than he is on the inside. 
Do you hear that? He can never, whatever a man might build, he can never, he could never express or reflect more out there than he really is on the inside. The psalmist is saying, this is the kind of king that you want. Because can you imagine, brothers and sisters and friends, can you imagine what the world would look like if it reflected and expressed what was true of the true king on the inside? If the kingdom started to look like the king, can you even imagine? No stream can rise higher than its source. But what if the source was infinitely good and true and beautiful. Can you even imagine? The psalmist is inviting you to let your imagination run wild. He's saying, this is what you should wait for. This is what you should expect. This is the king that we want. So we've seen what's true of the king on the inside, but then he goes on in verses 5 through 8 to tell us what the king is like on the outside. How his kingdom operates, the way that he rules, what he promotes and what he rejects. And instead of going through this, um, this section verse by verse, just use a, an illustration to, to, uh, to, to kind of sum it up. I think we could sum up verses 5 through 8 by saying that the true king is to the world the way that a bag of weed and feed is to your front yard. If you've ever used weed and feed um, at the beginning of the springtime season, like I did at the beginning of this spring, I looked out at my yard and I thought... <laughs> All of the bad things are doing really well, and the good things aren't even there. I've got lots of weeds, and I've got no grass. And so I go to Home Depot, and I buy a bag of weed and feed, and you spread it out throughout your, your yard, and it's incredible, isn't it? Because it knows exactly what to do. <laughs> it kills all the bad stuff, and it nourishes and feeds and promotes all of the good stuff. Now, I know. I'm comparing the true king to a bag of weed and feed, but just bear with me here because it works the same way. You get the point. The psalmist here is saying in verses 5 through 8 that under the rule of the true king, under the rule of the king that we want, his very presence repels and destroys the wicked while at the same time prospering and nourishing and blessing the righteous. Again, can you even imagine a world like this? Can you imagine breathing the air of a world that has been scrubbed clean of everything that's listed in verses 5 through 8? Slandering, haughtiness and arrogance, deceit and lying, wickedness and evil. Can you imagine? Can you imagine a world that has been... Imagine. Imagine a world where all of the wounds that have been caused by the people in verses 5 through 8 have been restored. Where God has put back together again what's been broken. Can you imagine? Towards the end of J.R. Tolkien's, um, the third book in his installment of The Lord of the Rings, there's a scene after the battle uh, of Gondor, one of the final battles in the series, and Many good men have fallen and are wounded by these poisonous swords of the dark army of Mordor. And King Aragorn, who is the king that has returned, he's disguised. He, he disguises himself and walks throughout the city. And Tolkien writes this. He says that as he went around healing, one of the city's nurses saw him and recalled a legend of Gondor 
The legend that said, the, he, the hands of the king are the hands of a healer, and so shall the rightful king be known. And then he writes, only Aragorn could save those wounded by the enemy. The hands of the king are hands of a healer. This is the kind of king that we want. A king that can heal the world and can heal you from the brokenness inside of you and outside of you. A king that makes the righteous prosper and the wicked flee. A king who comes with healing in his hands as far as the curse is found. Now, you might be thinking at this point, okay, I bet I know where he's going. This is the end of point one. Now we're going to get into point two. He's going straight to Jesus. And if you've, been, if you've been a part of Cornerstone for any amount of time, you've got good instincts. And that's right. I want you to be thinking in that way. But the thing is, there's a big problem. There's a huge problem here, which actually is the reason that we're going to end with Jesus in a moment. But we can't get there yet. Because the problem, well, we'll just say it like this. If point one is that this is the king that we want. The second point is that this is the king that we don't want. If this is an outline, a silhouette of the king that we want and that we're waiting for, the big problem is that this is also, at the same time, the king that you do not want. (laughs) Here's the problem. When this king comes, when the true king appears that we've been hoping and waiting for, a king that can actually pull this sword out of the stone, Do you dare to presume that you're the kind of person that he's going to welcome? Or do you know that you're the kind of person that he's coming to judge? Whosoever slanders his neighbor secretly, I will destroy. Have you ever slandered your neighbor? (laughs) Would he welcome you or destroy you? Whoever has a haughty look and an arrogant heart, I will not endure. Would the true king be able to endure you? I will know nothing of evil. Can the true king know you? Can you stand in the presence of this king that you want? (laughs) You see, this is the terrible problem. That the king that we want is also the king that we don't want. C.S. Lewis says it like this in Mere Christianity. In a chapter called, We Have Cause to Be Uneasy. He says the trouble is that, that on one part, that one, one part of you is on God's side. And you really do agree with, with God and his disapproval of human greed and trickery and exploitation. You may want him to make an exception in your case to let him off, to let you off just this one time. But you know that at bottom, unless the power behind the world really and unalterably detests that sort of behavior, our sort of behavior, then he cannot be good. On the other hand, we know that if there does not exist an absolute goodness, a true king like we're talking about, then, or if he does exist, then he must hate most of what we do. And this is the terrible fix we are in, C.S. Lewis says. If the universe is not governed by an absolute goodness, then all of our efforts are in the long run hopeless. But if it is, then we are making ourselves enemies to that goodness every day. And we're not in the least likely to do any better tomorrow. God is our only comfort and He is our supreme terror. The thing that we most need and the thing that we most hide from. We could paraphrase 
C.S. Lewis to say, our true king is our only possible ally, and we have made ourselves his enemies. Lewis closes the quote by saying, you see, he is either our great safety or our great danger, according to the way that you respond to him. And we have responded the wrong way. We have responded the wrong way because, brothers and sisters and friends, Psalm 101 looks nothing like you and me, does it? It's an outline of somebody, but we do not fit this outline. We're not loving or just. We're not blameless. We don't walk with integrity. We have feasted our eyes on what's worthless. We do have perverse hearts. We have slandered. We are haughty and arrogant. This is an outline of somebody else. That if you know yourself, you know that you can't fit. So where do we go from here? You see, the truth is, this should be the point of the sermon where we should really say, Amen, let's pray. Because we should be left at the same point that all of God's people were left in the Old Testament. Waiting, hoping, expecting. Where do we go from here? Well, the good news, brothers and sisters, is that Psalm 101, it's not only showing us the king that we do want. It's not only showing us the, the king that we don't want and that we can't stand in the presence of. It's t- Psalm 101 is showing us the king that came. The king that came. Did you notice in Psalm 101 that amidst all of the statements, amidst all of the affirmations and resolutions, all of the I'm going to do this and I'm not going to do that, that David sneaks in a question. The only question that we have in the psalm, verse 2 Oh, when will you come to me? It's as if David is recognizing, I can't do this. And I need someone to do this for me. I'm not the answer to this psalm. I'm not the answer for God's people. I need God himself to come and be God's, to be the answer for God's people. You see, we started this, we started the sermon by a reference to the, the movie, The Sword and the Stone. And you remember the story that the pathway of the king there, that that King Arthur's pathway to the throne was through a sword. He had to pull a sword out, and that was his pathway to the throne. And brothers and sisters, the good news of the gospel is that the true king, when he comes, when when he appears, that his pathway to the throne is through a sword. We've already read about it twice so far in our service this morning. In our New Testament reading in Titus chapter 2, we read that we are waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior Jesus Christ. Now, why is that good news? That you're waiting for the appearing of the true King. This is why it's good news. The next word, because He came to give Himself for us. Because he came to take the place of the people that did not want him to come. The true king is the one that comes to save and give himself for the people who can't stand in the true king's presence. He came, like Psalm 101, like Psalm 101 says, says, A perverse heart shall be far from me, and I will know nothing of evil. He came to take the place of those with a perverse heart, 
of those who know a lot about evil. He came at the end of verse 3 to take the place of those whose work falls away. The psalm here says, It shall not cling to me. But the true king comes and says, Let their work cling to me. I will become a curse in their place. I will become sin for them and be destroyed in their place. Verse 8. The true king says, Morning by morning I will destroy all the wicked in the land, cutting off all the evildoers from the city of the Lord. The true king comes saying, Let me be cut off in their place. Let me be destroyed in their place, sacrificed outside of the city. You see, the true king that comes is the one who came to give himself in the place of the people who didn't want him. And brothers and sisters, Friends, the good news of the gospel is that when he comes, he doesn't leave us like we are. When this king comes to be who we are supposed to be and to stand in our place, he begins to turn us into the kind of people that he made us to be. By his grace and for his glory, as he stands in our place and as we rest in his love and in his finished work, he begins to transform us into his image. We begin to take the shape of the king that came for us. So that Psalm 101 is not an impossible standard, but it's something that we begin to live into by his grace and by his power and for his glory And it begins to be something that's true of us. Like John writes in 1 John 3, he says, Beloved, we are God's children now. That's true now, but there's something something else that hasn't happened yet. But what we will be has not yet appeared because we know that when he appears, when the true king comes, we shall be like him. We're going to look like him. Because by his grace and by his power, he is at work transforming you into his image as you live a life responding to the gospel out of gratitude and love for the king who showed you his love and his justice on the cross and who now lives and reigns above, transforming you, healing you and this world of its wounds and who will one day bring us home. And for that, we keep waiting. And we keep hoping. Amen. Let's pray together. Lord Jesus, would you make it true of us? Would you take our eyes off of ourself and off of our failings and let us see the one who stood in our place, the one who was cut off for our failings and who now lives and reigns for us, interceding for us and who we can never be separated from, cut off from, because you were cut off from the Father in our place. O oh Lord, warm our hearts to love you each and every day of our lives, to live in response to this glorious gospel as we continue to wait for the true King. And we pray this, Lord Jesus, in your name. Amen.